Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, the ongoing, very interesting series of discussions on the COVID-19 crisis. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, YouTube, Rockfin, Odyssey, all the fun places to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. And I am very excited to welcome back to the show my intrepid co-host and the author of Rounding the Earth, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hey, Liam. How are you? I am doing very well, thank you. I can feel the breeze on my newly shortened hair, and the hat remains. You going to pretend it's not winter up there right now? Oh, man. it's It doesn't feel like winter. We're already on the way to summer. But... <laughs> It feels like winter in Texas. It is winter in Texas right now. You're feeling it. Yeah. Before we get started, I'm I'm going to give a little pushback Um, on the description of the COVID nineteen crisis. You said crisis. I did. I I I still I still feel like so much of this is like an invented crisis. Maybe maybe the the vast majority of it. Maybe all of it. I don't know. Um, But I, I I love the word pandemonium because it just feels like pandemonium is has been thrust upon us for something that, that didn't really need to be that way. So so that that's my rhetorical pushback for the day. Well, it's funny. I use the word crisis this time. My script says pandemic, and I specifically swap pandemic for crisis because I thought, well, that's a much more appropriate, slightly more all-encompassing word. But yeah, if we've got to get even more specific, so and, be and it. Maybe I should rewrite the 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 description of my Substack, and maybe we should uh, we should do an intro just to just to sort of like keep the the panic level low because mm. uh, I, I think I think the biggest thing that people would would need to panic about is their own panic. Yeah, that's a very good point. Well, um, not to panic, but today we have the largest show we have ever had so far. And I am tremendously excited to introduce everybody to this series of guests. So how do we want to do this? Let's bring people on one at a time and have them introduce themselves that way instead of overwhelming everybody all at once. So let's do this. First, let's welcome to the show, Albert Benavidez. Welcome to Eagle 88. How are you, sir? Oh, thank you, Liam. Thank you, Matthew, for having me. It's it's so wonderful. Um, yeah, I'm just excited to to see and hear uh, Dr. Stephen Rubin. <laughs> Don't mind me. <laughs> okay, well let's let's uh, let's use that as an opportunity to bring on the man himself. Hello, Stephen Rubin. How are you, sir? Good. How are you, Liam? Oh, I'm doing very well, and I'm very excited to have you here. Do you want to introduce yourself briefly to the audience who may or may not yet know who you are? Sure. Uh, I have been studying VARES, that that big word behind Albert there, for 20 years, long before anyone even knew what VARES is. I created the first website to let you search VARES, metalerts.org. 
the U.S. government site, CDC Wonder, came three years later. So I like to think that I've been egging the government to do the right thing and get this data out there. Well, it's very nice to meet you, Stephen. I've met all of our other guests today, but uh, uh, but but you're new to me, and and it, and it all almost sounds like an archaeological project, like discovered. <laughs> and maybe that's what it is with government databases sometimes, you know, having having discovered that there is this ancient information that we can try to make value out of. Yes, yeah. well, that's the other interesting thing about my website, MedAlerts, which is part of the NVIC, National Vaccine Information Center's uh, purview. Um, in the, at the very bottom of the screen, you see the words, the Wayback Machine. This is uh, my collection of data some people call me a digital pack rat because I never throw away data. And I have every release of VAERS that's been made since 2003. And it's still there on the MedAlerts website. This uh, used to mean very little. It was just my own refusal to throw away data. But uh, lately, it's become more and more important to have this history. And, uh, and I can talk more about that later and, and what you can do with the Wayback Machine. Sounds fantastic. Well, in the meantime, let's bring up uh, our next guest. I'd like to introduce everyone to Wayne. How are you, Wayne? Oh, I oh. got you muted. Albo, the, oh, their mic isn't connected. Oh, no. Yes, indeed. We've been having some audio issues behind the scenes, but we're going to get that figured out. Wayne, you there? there? Is. No. Oh, no. Uh, this is how the sausage is made, ladies and gentlemen. That's okay. Okay, we're going to get that figured out. Um, so for now, uh, let's, in fact, let's pull in, speaking of audio, our audio-only guest, Josh Gutzgau. Oh, did I pronounce that right? Close. Let's <laughs> go. Let's go. Josh, let's go. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Did somebody say sausage? Is there sausage? <laughs> uh, my name is Josh Getzko. I am a faculty member in sociology and criminology at the Hebrew University. Um, and uh, my mainstream academic work uh, doesn't deal with th th these issues, uh, though I've been bringing some of it more and more in line with this. And I started looking at VAERS and other pharmacovigilance data pretty early on in 2021. And um, I've been writing uh, stuff on it uh, ever since. I'm, I'm I'm in a car and I'm about to go through a tunnel, so I might uh, zone out here. I'm going to sign over. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming back on the show, Josh. Um, it looks like Wayne might be ready to try again. Wayne, you there? No, he's not there. Oh no. Oh. Well, that's okay. You know, so far we've got an audio-only guest, a video-only guest. That's another first. Okay, we're gonna Wayne can just Wayne Wayne could just move his lips and I'll just I'll just say stuff <laughs> as if I'm Wayne. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we're gonna continue to try to figure that out. But last but not least, in the meantime, allow us to introduce our final guest, Scott McLaughlin. How are you, Scott? Good, thanks, Liam. Just having a chuckle at the uh, remote ventriloquism. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, now do you want to introduce yourself to the audience as well? Right, so I'm a lecturer in digital technologies for healthcare 
Um, that's, you know, big, big fancy words and all, but basically 20 something odd years ago, I studied health science. I studied nursing, went into IT for 20 years. Um, and I've worked most of the last six years with um, Professor Norman Fenton and Professor Martin Neal at uh, Queen Mary University. Um, I recently moved to King's College to take over my own lectureship remit. Well, that's fantastic. And you've recently put out a, uh, a paper that we're going to turn to uh, in a minute. Um, and I think what I'm excited about the most for this show, guys, is we have um, we have a true dream team. And I tried to uh, I tried to the title was so long. The original idea was to call it the VAERS Audit League of America. And then I realized, well, not only is it too long, it also doesn't encompass the whole picture because we're really a global. Are you guys really encompass the globe? Uh, 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 we, I think, um, Scott, you're in, uh, you're in the United Kingdom. Um, yep. We've got Josh over in Israel um, and a strong contingent, of course, in the United States. And of course, VAERS, as we, uh, as we know, isn't exclusive to the States. So the World VAERS Audit League. Um, so we skipped over a little bit, Albert, at the beginning, but Albert, you are the person who introduced me personally to VAERS at all. I stumbled on your work on none other than this crazy fringe conspiracy theory video platform called BitChute, where um, you really kind of blew my mind uh, fairly early on in my experience in mid-2021. That's when I started learning about VAERS, and it's thanks to you, sir. So can you give yourself a, a more elaborate introduction now? Um, you deferred very quickly uh, to Steve. Ex explain to the audience who you are, for those who don't know. Yeah, well, uh, my name's Albert Benavides, and I go by Welcome the Eagle on social media, um, which is uh, Twitter and BitChute and Odyssey. And, um, you know, I... I learned about BitChute early on in this pandemic myself when I was getting um, uh, thrown out of, of YouTube following following these people in 2020 who were driving around the hospitals saying, you know, the, on the news, the, they were saying that the hospitals were, were filled up and, and patients were busting out at the seams. You know, it was like, oh my God, there's, it's awful. Yet when you drove around these hospitals, they looked like they were empty. So I was doing that same thing, uh, driving around my local hospital here in Santa Clara County. I'm in San Jose, California, the, the belly of the beast. And we didn't have, we experienced the same thing. And I was getting my videos, my YouTubes um, pinched for that. So I had to find some other place and that's where I found BitChute. And I followed VAERS, um, you know, basically from day one, uh, because I am a, a medical biller by profession and I've, and I've managed some uh, pretty big billing operations, uh, particularly for um, a diagnostic laboratory for a good part of my career, um, uh, bioreference lab out of, out of New Jersey. Uh, they purchased our, our uh, fairly good sized lab here in Campbell, California, but I think that that has even helped me being from the lab from lab billing has helped me with all of this all this blood stuff you know with covid and, and all that stuff um <clears throat> so anyways i you know fast forward to to now to the present day i've created a uh what i like to call or think it is a, a vers interactive dashboard 
at my at my website here bearsaware.com and uh and and again thank you to um dr steven rubin into med alerts because i i use my dashboard almost kind of a quasi hyperlinked to to the med alerts um website in that after you um uh uh query your visual graphs and get zero in on the reports that you want you can jump to you can authenticate those reports uh on med alerts and i have a little hyperlink system where you you know you click the report the the, the id number on my on my page but then it shows you it pulls in the actual report from med alerts so I rely heavily on uh, Dr. Steven Rubin's website, MedAlerts, <clears throat> and uh, you know, and with that, like like he was talking about the um, his his Wayback system, his archive, all that data that he has in there is now people are um, asking for deleted reports, or they actually want to see um, history from pre-COVID jabs, you know, and and uh, uh, MedAlerts has like like Dr. Rubin was saying back to 2003 and uh, <clears throat> I'm always talking about the wayback machine <clears throat> I just have to clarify to people it's not it's 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 metalert's own wayback machine it's not the the like the internet's wayback machine but it, uh metalert's wayback machine is 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 awesome and uh, it's, it's where you can find a lot of data and that's where I I built my dashboard for like all deleted reports that that MedAlerts has, and uh, so so. Anyways, that's kind of the the short story about my interactive bears dashboard that I like to say in typical Silicon Valley uh, fashion, we fake it until we make it. But I, like like Theranos, so I'm saying that hopefully hopefully uh, it's uh, uh, it's the next it's kind of the next evolution in, in my mind at least of what a VAERS system will be in the terms of data visualization and interactive dashboards and stuff like that. Okay, I want I want to pursue that thought, but I also want to make sure we give a chance to see if Wayne can uh, can, can be heard. Are you there? Oh, no. no. This is crazy. We're, uh, okay. Well, Wayne, I'm not sure what to tell you, my friend. This is really unfortunate. Um, Does he check the little headphone thing that he's got down near his belly there? Because they have a tendency to flip off. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, th this is a show of a lot of firsts. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say, Wayne, I don't think that mic is working. Okay, well, we're going to continue what we've been doing, which is trying to figure this out in the back end. So um, I want to... Um, I want to pull this up again. Um, this this Vare's Wayback Machine. I want to learn a little bit more about it. Um, where did I hide this thing? So, Steve, do you want to explain how did how did you put this together in the first place? Um, what what is the Vare's Wayback Machine? Well, one thing I think I should start by clarifying. You keep calling me Doctor Rubin. I am not a medical doctor. I have a PhD in computer science. And I've been programming computers for 55 years. So I have a lot of history there. And uh, 
I just love data. And when I learned about VARES 20 years ago, who could resist free data? So I started collecting it. Uh, the idea of the Wayback Machine was just a place to put this data, but there's a couple of interesting things that the Wayback Machine can do. First, you can, uh, at the very top, you, you see uh, the first choice is follow the changes to a VARES case. If you enter any single VARES ID number, it will go through all 250 releases of VARES and show you the entire history of that report, when it first appeared, any changes the government made, and if it was deleted. So you can see all this history. You can also compare any two releases. So you can say, and I do this every week when new data is posted to MedAlerts, I immediately start by comparing it to the previous week and see what has the government done. And there are two types of changes. One is to change an actual case. So that's the second blue bar, find differences between cases in two releases of various database. And it gives you a, a red and green, shows you the case where red text will indicate something that got deleted from the report and green text shows something that's been added. So it's quite clear to see how the changes were made. Uh, you can also look at the added and removed cases. Every week there are many, many added cases, of course, but there's also some removed, and this has been the case for 20 years. This is not a new thing. Uh, they do delete cases. Um, the other thing you can do is to search an older release of theirs. You can just drop into any of these 250 former releases and do a complete search of the data. Um, so it's uh, quite useful, I suppose, uh, especially these days to uh, understand what may once have happened. Okay, now th this is uh, clearly tremendously useful. And I'm, I'm curious, given that you were the first, you, you predated, as you explained, the, the actual US government's efforts to create such a system. So what led you to do so in the first place? Well, uh, someone wanted to search VARES and at the time, VARES only existed as these download files, three files per year uh, for every year since VARES started collecting data in 1990. Uh, so you'd have to download all these files, glue them together. Uh, and so I just wrote a custom program to do this. And suddenly I had something useful. And then people started saying, but I want to let me see it. I want to explore it. So I just created this searchable database. It, just seemed like it was what we say in the computer industry. It was a Friday project. A, a, it wasn't my main job, but it was this thing that I just did occasionally. And it got the notice of a lot of people, including the National Vaccine Information Center. And I partner with them now. But my main goal is to just have the facts, all the facts, not not put opinion on it. And this is not about COVID. Uh, Medalerts is about VARES, all of VARES. And the idea is that it is, and, and you know, and I get attacked by a number of uh, fake news organizations that want to take down my website. And so I just, when, every time they ask me questions, I say, I'm not changing any of the data. I'm not blogging about anything in particular. Some websites are, are sort of screaming up front this is what's going on with COVID. And according to what we've picked apart out of VAERS, 
I don't want to do that. I want to be more universal. I want to survive this pandemic and still be looking at VAERS because it is useful. A lot of people complain about VAERS. They talk about the fact that you cannot make a, a medical statement about the safety of a vaccine by merely looking at VAERS. And this is true, by the way, numerically, mathematically, there's not enough data. It's a post-marketing system that doesn't have in it the healthy people. It um, is underreported by vast amounts and always has been. But that doesn't matter to me. What matters is that VAERS can identify trends. VAERS does have a lot of information and you can look at it and you can see things that are going on. And we certainly do, all of us here are seeing these things. And then you can turn around to the government as NVIC does quite often uh, and say, look what we see in VAERS. It identifies a trend you need to look more carefully. And so, this is the canary in the coal mine. It doesn't mean that all the miners are going to die, but the canary is not doing well. That's very well put. Now, that's uh, I, I want to say also, you just pointed out the different uh, approaches that various various analysts have taken, some of whom have come into this because of COVID, are focusing primarily or entirely on COVID. And when we had uh, Liz Wilmer of OpenVares and uh, Jessica Rose, uh, two weeks ago, we had sort of a similar discussion where we, we we pointed out, you know, everyone is looking at this from a slightly different angle. And and it seems to me that all of it is tremendously useful, especially when there's so much data and so much to interpret uh, and to avoid over-interpreting um, that you wind up with a collection of tools and a collection of perspectives. Um, and, you know, now... I think this is a good opportunity to turn to uh, to Scott and to Josh because that's where we have uh, an, an amount of analysis leading to some conclusions. Um, and I'm wondering, Scott, if you can introduce us to um, this work that you have uh, put out and now recently updated. What are we looking at here? Right. So that's the that's the first paper from 2021. So right. um, I, I sort of tripped over VAERS, I suppose, by accident um, in that, you know, we were hearing a lot of anecdotal um, reports of things that were going on. And I went looking for, okay, where, where is some data that I can look at and go through and, and try and work out what's happening elsewhere? Um, at the time, I was uh, working in uh, Norman Fenton's lab and at the same time uh, doing a little bit of work with things like some health data through uh, one of the NHS trusts. And so, you know, I couldn't use the NHS trust data to do the analysis that I wanted to, because um, that wasn't within the remit of the of the stuff that I was doing. So I went looking at VAERS. And so what we did was, and we ended up being one of the, the first, I think it was the first paper really that got published, or, or at least released as a preprint, that considered, um, that the, the did a bit of a roll up and analysis of just what was, what was in that very, very early VAERS data. So what we looked at in that paper was we pulled the first 250 um, com complete VAERS records from when the vaccine rollout started. So I think the, the earliest patient was like December the 19th or December the 20th um, and came through into, into January. And so we're looking at these 250 patients to see, you know, what trends were there. We weren't really looking to make 
huge conclusions. We didn't think we were going to, you know, as a sample size, it's tiny. But what we wanted to see was just, you know, what can we learn about those first 250 people? And what we learned was actually pretty shocking. And, you know, when we look back now, we can go, yeah, well, that makes sense. But at the time, it was pretty new stuff. So we learned things like the fact that the vast majority of those 250 obviously were elderly people. So it's very it's it's very heavily weighted. I think it's about 53 or 54 percent weighted um, towards people who are um, 75 or 80 and above. Uh, and what we noticed about them was that uh, about half of them. So if you if you scroll down a little ways, there's a there's a, a wee little um, uh, upside down pyramid diagram. Half of them were dying within 24 to 48 hours of being given their jab. So that's that that's the one there. So yeah, you'll see. Oop, disappeared. The, the one with the four dark sticks. Yeah, so 50% of them were dying within 48 hours, 24 to 48 hours of receiving that jab. So, you know, as, as, a, as a signal for is something going on, well, that's a pretty loud signal. That's, that's bouncing around the room with a siren. Um, and then on top of that, if you add it with the next bar, you've got 80% of the people in that group um, had died within seven days. So, you know, that, that it tends to make you wonder. I mean, it's, 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 it's um, you know, it's a correlation. It's not causation, but it tends to make you wonder, are we giving these vaccines to the right people? Are we doing something wrong? Um, and when you look through the, the rest of it there, you'll see things like um, pretty much almost all of the people who were in that first 250 group had comorbidities of some sort. Um, and of course, the it's it's as we know now, but we didn't know then. They were weighted heavily towards um, uh, blood pressure disorders, so that's the the hypertensive disorders, cardiac disorders, and strangely diabetes. And you know, at the time, it seemed a bit strange, but now that we know that the, or, or at least now that we can see that there does seem to be something going on with uh, autoimmune type disorders, well, diabetes is an autoimmune disorder. So it starts to make sense that we'd see diabetes in there, um, and so that was our that was our first report. That really was just to to go through. The key thing that we did come out of that that you'll have heard uh, probably people like Dr. Peter McCullough talk about quite a bit is the fact that at the time there was a lot of noise in the media and a lot of the fact checkers were going, well, no, that VAERS, it's rubbish. It's all anti-vaxxers putting, um, you know, nonsense things in there, putting false reports in to, to flood the system and make the vaccines look bad, you know, terrible stuff. What we did find, though, and bear in mind we had a group that included myself, now somebody who originally trained in nursing but who was a health informatician, so we had myself, we had another health informatician, we had a midwife, we had an RN, um, we had two doctors who were not named on the report because, of course, they, they could have ended up with issues with the GMC, um, and we had a statistician as well. So, you know, and we had Professor Fenton as, as our, you know, math god at the top of the tree. So, you know, here we are looking at, at this stuff, the nurses and the clinical people, we went through and read every report manually. Reading the reports manually, we were able to classify them based on, is this just, you know, somebody's sister writing something and going, my sister had a heart attack after a, a jab? Or is it a clinical record that's written in clinical language using medical terminology? And what we found was that 
um, at the at the most basic level, uh, about 63 or 64% of them were definitely a nurse or a doctor. And there was another seven odd percent who were, it was the pharmacists, um, because I noticed in America, you had pharmacists who were administering the, the, the jabs quite early. So that meant 72% of the reports that we looked at were written by clinical people. They were not written by frothy mouthed anti-vaxxers, you know, trying to taint the system. And that I think was the most important finding we got out of that whole piece of work. And so that was something that uh, if you come forward to the second paper that we just released uh, about two weeks ago, um, that was the one of the first things that we went looking for in this particular paper was to go back and see, is that still consistent? And what we found was, I think it ended up being, um, it was still in the 60s. It was about 62 or 63% again were definitely written. They were um, either taken from the clinical record. So it was literally the EHR of the patient that had been dumped in the symptom text. Or it was a doctor or a nurse who'd rung up. And so what we were being told in the report was, you know, this is this is a, a verifiable person. This is a contactable or notifiable person. Um, and, you know, we, we were able to even identify in a lot of them that it was a nurse who made the report or if it was a doctor who made the report. Um, and there was also uh, a couple of percent which were reports that were actually put in by um, uh, Pfizer or Moderna staff members. And so, again, they were they were very medical terminology heavy reports as opposed to something you'd expect from somebody's brother or sister. So um, and if you if you yeah, if you go back up a little bit, you'll notice that um, some of the comparisons we did was to look at things like the shift in age groups. And we also looked at the things like the shift in onset. So there were a lot more people. This report covers just over a thousand people. It's a thousand and twelve odd people um, in, in this report, all people who were reported dead and they were all reported dead in the same period as the original 250. So what we wanted to do was come 12 months forward, look at the same period and go, right, you know, what do we get? And so when you when you look at this one, we've got over this just over a thousand people and we're looking at um, things like, OK, how did the age shift change? Well, the age shift changed in that obviously about 30 percent of the um, reports moved into younger age groups. You'll also notice that um, we mentioned in there the fact that every death under 15 that we read was a male, which is which is very, very sort of, you know, when you consider everybody, uh, I heard Jessica last week talking about the fact that lots of young males with the myocarditis, etc. everyone under 15 that we looked at was male. Um, and so, and you're also looking at things like we looked at the comorbidities and we tried to do some sort of cross-checking between comorbidities and found that with all honesty, that the incidence of um, a vaccine, a potential vaccine-related death, I say potential because, of course, we can't confirm based on the data we find in a VIRS report, but the sort of correlation between a vaccine death and a cardiac condition and an autoimmune condition all in the same patient or a cardiac condition and a blood pressure condition or a cardiac condition and a clotting condition all in the same patient. Well, that if you were to take out the cardiac patients and take out the patients who already have a pre-existing autoimmune disorder, about 45% of these deaths would not have occurred. Wow. 
Okay. Um, well, you know, you get a sense that there are people who hear all this and go, okay, well, we just didn't know there, there wasn't sufficient data at the beginning. And it's only now that, that teams like yours, Scott, are able to perform such analysis, but this is perhaps a good time to turn to, um, to, to Josh, who, uh, recently has engaged in some very interesting analysis and discussion around, um, the CDC and their own safety monitoring analysis um, of theirs. So, Josh, can you elaborate on what I've just introduced there? Yes, sure. So um, one of the things that I tried to do was to take the, the CDC's own published methodology of how they go about using VARES to detect they call safety signals, which are really danger signals. But you know, the, the whole purpose of, of VAERS is as a pharmacovigilance system, an early warning system that can alert you to what they call safety signals that um, indicate there might be a problem here, right? The canary in the coal mine uh, that Steve mentioned. And then they have a whole slew of other methods and data they can use to follow up and, and determine if that signal is, is, is really caused by the vaccine or whatever drug they're looking at. So <clears throat> I did this analysis in 2021 late, uh, and, uh, you know, hundreds of safety signals, very serious things I found. So I thought, well, um, if I'm finding them, the CDC must be finding them because I just, you, I just duplicated their methodology of how they said they were going to go looking for safety signals. So we FOIA'd them uh, for their, they said they were every week they were going to be doing this analysis and producing results. So uh, we said, okay, what did you find? And they came back and said, well, we didn't do it. We didn't do the safety signal analysis. This was in spring of 2022. Uh, that we got this answer and then it turned out uh, there was a lot of back and forth but it turned out well they did actually start a safety signal analysis in late march of 2022 coincidentally just a few days after we asked them about our FOIA request but that's another issue and they and they said and then they finished in at the end of july saying well you know the fda was doing their own safety signal analysis we basically found the same things they did and there was nothing unexpected. So uh, the Epoch Times uh, FOIA'd them for the safety signal analysis that they had done. And they recently came back, they got the results and they found, you know, 770 safety signals, very, very concerning um, issues, you know, cardiac issues, blood clotting issues, neurological issues, menstrual, gastrointestinal, cancer, death, you name it. Um, and that's just for the adults. And then they had, you know, a lot of concerning safety signals for young teenagers and kids. Now, the person you, now, now here's the thing, they waited 15 months after the vaccines rolled out to do their first safety signal analysis. We don't know what, how long the FDA waited because the FDA refuses to share any of their safety signal analysis with the public or release it through a Freedom of Information Act request. 
However, now here's the person you should be talking to is Wayne. So Wayne used Steve's Wayback Machine, grabbed the Veris data from the early rollout period, right? And went back and said, okay, if, because now we know exactly what methodology the CDC used, exactly the comparison that they used. So you could do the same comparison and say, if they had been looking, when would they have found their first signals? And they would have found the signal for death within a month of the vaccine rollout. And, and Wayne found a bunch of other signals that would have been uh, triggered very early. And he found that if you broke it down into even smaller age groups, like if you look at like, you know, 80 plus or 70 plus, you would have seen a signal within a couple of weeks. So this thing, this early warning system has been blaring from the beginning, from the very beginning. And the only reason that people didn't know is because they didn't look. Okay. Well, that's crazy. Um, and I think now's a good time to try again to get, um, to get Wayne in here. So I'm going to, I'm going to add Wayne to the stream. If he's good with that, let's see if this works. Hey, Wayne. Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, thank, thank goodness we can hear you. <laughs> nah, I apologize. apologize. Uh, usually I'm not that bad with technology. Um, I'm used to using Zoom more, I guess. Yeah, it's got its benefits and, and downsides. Well, Wayne, do you want to introduce yourself uh, to the audience now that we've got you here? Sure. My name is Wayne. I run verisanalysis.info uh, that you can see on the screen. Uh, what else? I went to college for chem chemical engineering, uh, ended up in IT, built websites, built software. I actually manage data and databases for a university now. And uh, actually, I spent a good almost a decade working for big pharma. So at the time, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Uh, now I might disagree, but uh, at the time, I was building software basically to help uh, big pharma capture doctors in the medical system. I mean, that's essentially how you could describe what I was doing. Uh, and then you guys can still hear me, right? Oh, yeah. Don't you worry. All right. Good. All right. So fast forward to a couple of years ago, I noticed just like I think Albert said this in the beginning that uh, he was seeing all these stories about people being stuck in the hospitals or the hospitals overflowing and, you know, we have a major crisis, everyone's going to die kind of thing. I went, being skeptical in nature, I just went and checked out my own hospital, uh, checked several times, saw that it was deserted, basically. And then I concluded, after looking at uh, other corroborating evidence, including people, other people, citizen journalists looking uh uh, posting stuff online, showing them walking, showing themselves walking through hospitals that are empty and wondering what the heck is going on. Uh, at that point, I concluded this whole thing was basically a fraud. And so uh, eventually, when they started talking about vaccines, I was extremely skeptical. And then uh, once they rolled out, uh, I had pretty much been convinced that uh, these things are not going to be safe and someone should be looking at bears. And so uh, the idea for the website came about when I looked at what was out there. I know there was there was metal alerts, there was open bears, uh, but 
it was not really a site that uh, kind of graphically summarized everything in a very simplistic manner for people to really get a big picture view of actually what was going on in VAERS in terms of uh, number of deaths, adverse events, that kind of thing. And so that's that's why the site was born, basically. And so that's VAERS analysis, which we're looking at right now. Now, can yeah. you um, can you summarize what is it that you have found through your analysis over the course of this period and perhaps leading into what Josh just suggested you might have stumbled across uh, that that substantiates um, some of what he found? Okay, well, if we just want to talk about, yeah, the PRR analysis, I mean, that's kind of what I've been doing lately, although I've more or less kind of uh, semi-retired from working on this actively. So most of my stuff at this point is somewhat self-maintaining. I have uh, automated scripts to basically run and, and generate my weekly. So I have a weekly update that is on the website and that, that pretty much happens mostly on its own. So uh, it's not until, you know, things come out that catch my attention that I think need to be done that I really get involved or re-involved in VARES again. Uh, but uh, with Josh's uh, PRR stuff, uh, the proportional ratio, uh, reporting ratio signal analysis, with the FOIA request stuff coming out, uh, that caught my attention and I thought that, gee, someone should really go back and look and see when safety signals actually first trigger using the CDC's own methodology. And so that's kind of what I did. Um, let's see, what page do you have up? This is, uh, I think it's your most recent VAERS weekly summary from four days ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's just my typical summary. So, you know, you just get a summary of all the deaths. You have graphical charts showing everything you need to know, essentially, mm -hmm. about what's going on. Um, if you want to go back to, let's see, where were we? If you go to the defund the CDC posts, I can talk through those. I actually just posted part three. Uh, earlier today yeah. yeah we've got this here defund the cdc part three there were safety signals missing from the yeah. cdc's okay. very safety analysis so um, is, july 29 probably uh other than the fact that they didn't do the safety signal analysis which is a huge problem by itself and other than the fact that it showed a lot of you know a lot of safety signals have been blaring for quite a while but beyond that if we look at what they actually provided us, um, what what I found is that they're actually missing quite a few signals. And so that post was basically to summarize that, which is, you know, there were several signals missing. Uh, I counted maybe 80 or so important signals. So uh, there were a whole bunch of signals, but many of them are actually just uh, symptoms for diagnostic procedures. And so I can I can understand why they would leave those out, but uh, when I looked more carefully, I found at least eighty or so different symptoms that you know they they didn't capture at all, and didn't report on. And so the question is why, right? The question is why. Well, well okay. You can pull down that screen. 
right there, yeah. So those are your examples of safety signals that were not present in that file they released uh, of the safety signal analysis they did on July 29th. Wow. Okay. So, um, look, this, this has been very um, alarming for someone like me, and I think for a lot of people who, um, up until now, have never had any reason to think of vaccines in general or any specific vaccine as being something to be worried about beyond the obvious, you know, pinprick of a needle in the arm. And what has happened over the last couple of years has, um, speaking for myself, caused me to now go, well, hold on a second. I understand that these shots are new in technology, in premise, in, in how they're supposed to work, and of course, in the, uh, in the illness that they're supposedly treating. But I also see that a lot of the problems I'm seeing probably did exist, they at least could exist across vaccines that, that came before this. And of course, the same people that are, some of the same people at least, that are engaged in the current discussion have also been engaged in prior concerns, uh, prior warning bells uh, about vaccines. So I'm wondering if, um, if Steve, can you, can you give us some insight on what, what has this COVID experience highlighted that has been the same, that has existed prior to COVID, and what is different about this COVID era as far as pharmacovigilance of vaccines, as far as concerns about safety and efficacy, so on and so forth. Can you provide us some historical insight? That's hard to say from a global perspective, but I would say that the biggest difference is that everyone is aware of VAERS. Everyone who got a COVID shot was handed a piece of paper, and on the back of that piece of paper, it said, contact VAERS if you have a problem. So we went from a system with 800,000 cases spanning 30 years to well over 2 million cases with just two more years of, of data collection. So we suddenly have more data than ever before. And I suppose this is good, but we also, you know, the argument against this point is that there are more people getting vaccinated. But really, if you think about it, that's not so true because the flu vaccine is given to many millions of people every year. And we never had any reports in VAERS of a significant count uh, like it before. Um, I would like to point out one additional thing that uh, about Medalerts, since I'm here to brag about my website, and, and that is that, um, and this is something that uh, people don't always notice, but Medalerts adds in external sources of information to the analysis of theirs. It's built into my system. There's a couple of these things. And you have to, everyone's doing the same thing, but I do uh, this across the board. Uh, and in, in the case of symptoms, this is particularly important. And um, it's useful for the average user who just wants to learn about vaccines. But I think it would also be useful for um, folks such as those on the forum here who are looking at this all the time. One of the things that the symptoms 
do is that they are coded using something called the Medra. It's a medical dictionary of symptoms. It has 80,000 symptoms in it. And it's used for pharmacological. So here, here, in fact, we can see uh, this is the Medra browser. And it turns out that it's a licensed collection of data, this, this list of symptoms. And so you can't just take it and present it. The fact that I have, you can see this Medra browser, it's five levels of symptoms. This is the top level, very broad level symptoms. And if you click on any one of them, uh, this, this top level is symptom organ class. If you click on the plus sign on any one of these, you will see uh, the sub symptoms under that. And you can actually browse this hierarchy of symptoms. Now, I'm not allowed to give out the entire Medra but uh, what you're seeing here is only the medra that has um, only the symptoms that appear in VARES. So, and interestingly, only 20% of the medra symptoms appear in VARES. So this medra browser built into my website at medalerts.org is only looking at this subset of medra. It, it would be, I would be going against their license agreement to produce the whole thing. But I do a number of interesting things with the Medra. One of them is that you can search hierarchically, you can search by this hierarchy, you can do a symptom search, and it gives you uh, this top level of, of a few dozen big categories and tells you how many of the cases you've asked for appear in all of them. And you can open it up and go down and down and down. You can even see it in a tree form and it draws this tree in a, in a very nice graphical form that you can uh, see when you do a search. Um, there's also something else in the Metro that the uh, doctors who created it have uh, produced something called uh, SMQs, standardized Medra queries. Because, you know, with 80,000 symptoms, it's nearly impossible for anyone to understand. Oh, wait, that will come up in, uh, well, my other. Anyway, with 80,000 symptoms, it's impossible for every, anyone, even a professional, to understand what's going on. But the standardized Medra queries are about 200 very common maladies and and they've been mapped onto these 80,000 symptoms and so you can now ask MedAlerts to tell you the actual diseases that according to these symptoms that, that the, the Medra people think you have and there are weak and strong indicators. A weak indicator means if you have the symptom, it may be that disease. A strong indicator is if you have that symptom, it's very likely to be that disease. And you can look at this and get uh, all the information that you want. Uh, so it's it's uh, that's one example of, of external data. Another example of external data that I'll go over very quickly is um, maps, which um, people like to print, uh, showing how many cases have appeared in which of the states in the United States. And this is pointless information because you're always going to have more cases showing up in the more populated states. But one of the things that MedAlerts can do is it knows the census data and it can give you a map that's adjusted by the population of each state. So you can see a per capita number of people in a state that are having uh, various reactions. So the idea of federating, if you will, uh, 
incorporating multiple data streams, which is something that Albert does quite a bit in, in his uh, system too. A lot of people are starting to do it, but I have been doing this for 20 years and make use of it, folks. Make use of it indeed. Um, okay, incredible. Well, I want to turn to Matthew. I think he's got um, he's got something he wants to add in. Well, and, and I, I've got a question or two or a comment or two um, related to uh, the projects and research that that all of you been have been doing. Um, but uh, I'm going to start with um, with Stephen first here because uh, you mentioned uh, that people got. Um, if somebody got a vaccine, they were given a piece of paper that said something about VAERS on it. Is that yes. different from uh, other vaccines? Well, you know, a lot of people complain about how dirty the uh, VAERS data is with respect to COVID. Um, people talk about hot lots, and we could have a whole discussion about that. But the truth of the matter is that in a typical vaccine situation, you go to your doctor, the doctor knows your medical history, knows what you need. The doctor says, you need this flu shot, you need a booster on this, that, or the other. And and there's a label that's been pre-printed and the <clears throat> syringe is preloaded and and they give you the shot and you walk out and they and the database their record of the shot and the lot number and everything is perfect. It's exact because it's all been pre-digitized. With COVID, we went to these circus tents and lined up and, and they didn't know who you were. You got to the front of the line, they gave you a shot. And then they, they said they, they scribbled very quickly on a piece of paper because they didn't have any other system. They weren't tied into medical databases and they scribbled on a piece of paper what you got and what the lot number was. And so now when you go to report it to VAERS, you're, you're just a consumer or even the doctor reading it off of this piece of paper of somebody who spent all day long giving the shots and scribbling these numbers down. And there's a lot of examples. I've seen it in VAERS where, where, a four got written down as the letter capital A because of four, you rotated a little, it looks like an A. And, and then somebody goes, oh, this lot number with an A and it looks very safe because very few people got it. No, it was the lot number with a four in it. And it's not safe because it's everywhere. Well, I'm going to add a little bit of context to the reason I asked uh, Stephen this question. Um, there are a number of people that uh, I've, I've had email contact with and debating, you know, VAERS and the meaning of VAERS and, and the data inside. Uh, there are a lot of people who dismiss VAERS entirely saying, well, there's a notoriety effect. More people know about VAERS than ever before. And that's the reason why the reports have, have jumped up so much. And uh, just to give an example, one of those people was um, Dr. David Katz, um, who wrote an article um, talking about VAERS and its limitations. He, I guess he was chosen to, to write this article and it was pushed out on LinkedIn and other places. <clears throat> and he has a, a whole lot of letters after his name, MD, uh, MPH, FACPM, FACP, FACLM. Um, and yet um, when I talked to him uh, by Zoom, uh, I, yeah, he, he could not say if he had ever, ever read a VAERS report before. So I just want to point that out right now. And he was the person chosen to write that article about VAERS. But uh, he and many others have, have suggested that there is something like a notoriety effect. And I haven't done a deep, deep dive. But uh, as far as like people that I talked to about this, I was the only one who had done something like brought up Google Trends to see, you know, uh, you know what, what can we say about how much people, you know, might might have known about VAERS. Um, 
the VARES reports started, or the VARES, um, you know, Googling uh, people getting in search engines kind of started to climb toward the end of January. But most pe most of the elderly had already received a shot who were going to receive a shot by then. And and when we look at, uh, and, and anyone here can correct me if I'm wrong, Albert, uh, uh, you, you have the easiest dashboard to just, you know, check that instantly. But um, the VARES reports came in hot long before that point. Is that is that correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, I started to notice the deaths um, kind of disproportionate to the uptake right right from the beginning. I mean, it, it started the first the first reports of death on January 8th, 2021. It was the first 13,000, I mean, 13 deaths that we got. Then it jumped to six, 66 deaths. And then it was kind of exponential the next couple of, of rollouts. And within, you know, and after the first month or two, in early 2021, we were already up to a, a few hundred deaths. And in proportion to what the uptake was at that time, I thought it was like, wow, this this doesn't this doesn't match. It's a, if it's supposed to be super rare and once in a million a severe adverse event or something like that, safe and effective. <laughs> it sure didn't look that way right out of the gate within the first few weeks of, of the rollout. So, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm not finding so a lot of evidence for the notoriety effect. Um, and in particular, when I look at the Google trends, um, the, the biggest bite comes much later in the year and really corresponds to the, um, the employer mandates. And, uh, you know, just judging from what I I think this is this is an effect, not a cause. I think this is people, um, you know, uh, pe people who were, you know, kind of pushed into getting a vaccine that they didn't want. And then immediately um, began to, you know, perform an Internet search after feeling bad uh, or something like that. And of course, um, you know, earlier on, you have older people getting vaccinated. But during the employer mandates, you've got working age people who really know how to use the search engine well. Uh, uh, have several decades of experience with that by now. Um, so I just I, I wanted that to be part of the conversation because I feel like that that's used to too easily push back at the VAERS numbers. Right, Matthew, um, can I jump in here? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I have, want to apologize first. I, I something happened and I, I I I dropped out and I'm just coming back. So what I have to say may have already been said, but uh, um, first of all, people who dismiss VAERS for that reason don't realize that the, I mean, the, the total number of reports isn't how they go about detecting safety signals. It's a percentage of reports, disproportionate percentage of reporting for different types of adverse events. And as you've pointed out in the past, when you, if you have a, a vaccine where you have a ton of new reports, that would actually tend to drown out safety signals rather than elevate them. The other, the other point of that is that they have a method. CDC has a published methodology, how they go about distinguishing between what you might call a notoriety effect versus a true effect. And if you use their methodology, which they've done, you can see that you cannot dismiss all of the safety signals on that basis. That's the second part. And the third part is that if it was notoriety, then you would see you would expect to have seen a rise for all other vaccines over the same period as well. You don't see that. The reporting for other vaccines is similar to what it's been in previous years. So and those are three uh, responses adds, I have. 
uh, sorry, pardon. Um, th and this adds to Stephen's point, which is that uh, VAERS is not about um, uh, you know getting a complete picture of everything that happens because it's underreported. It's about using a system that is consistent enough that you can judge trends, right? Um, if you it, it, you know all data is dirty. And typically, uh, when we work in any field, we, we have some assumption that we're working with dirty data and we think about what we can make from that data. And when you have consistency, what you can get is trends. You know, if people trust just basic polling data, like how popular is the president, um, you know, that polling data is certainly not a whole view of the country at once, right? And there are different aspects of data that you have to consider when you judge how useful the data is. Um, and then one of those, and this goes to, um, to some of Scott's research, um, there is a temporal signal, a very strong temporal signal. Um, is that signal more or less strong than for other vaccines? Do we know that? Um, that's, and and that, that's a very good question. One of the things we noticed between the first data set and the second data set that we reviewed is the the, the time frame stretched so in the first data set you had 80 percent of your your deaths within seven days of a dose in the second data set we actually saw a lot more people were and i've, I've got the the data open in front of me um you had well better than 60 percent of the people in the in the 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 1,012 group data set were 100 days out from their vaccination. But when you look at then the type of things they died of, um, that makes sense as well. So the people who are dying much earlier are dying of the, the, the sort of very quick onset anaphylaxis. They're dying of um, something that exacerbates a, a current uh, comorbid condition. The ones that we're seeing the signal in at 100 days plus are the ones who are... Um, you know, often they're, they're, they're the 30 or 40% of people in our second data set who did not have a comorbidity. So it's obviously, and, and you, you read some of the reports and they're talking about, you know, the patient had a steady degradation or they, they had a deterioration up to the point where they just didn't get up one day. So um, there, there's, a, there's a temporal, there's a definite temporal data set for younger people it's it's a very quick it it it, it hits quite quickly um, there's less so of a temporal um, connection with some of the middle-aged people who don't have a comorbidity thanks for clarifying and you know if you have any kind of raised uh, you know temporal signal from past vaccines um, one thing that this does is it overcomes a criticism that a lot of people, make but then don't go very far with with which is base rate fallacy um, base rate fallacy is something that we should always be aware of uh, which is that that you know does this look different inconsistent with you know uh, base distributions and base rates of illness and injury uh, from from previous circumstances and um, you know again if you have something that is consistent and that's the important thing about the VAERS database um, then you can uh, you know make some of these types of judgments and then I'm, I'm going to throw in uh, this very important point. Um, I can't remember who mentioned it. Uh, I, I think it was Josh. Um, Josh said um, the CDC came back and, and or the FDA came back and said, well, we weren't really you know, concerned about safety signals because it was nothing unexpected. Okay, <laughs> right there. That tells us that everything we've been saying about what we saw in VAERS is true, right? I, that's basically the FDA and, and CDC saying, yes, 
we know about all of these problems. And in fact, I mean, it's even worse than that, though. But but first of all, that 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 pushes back against any argument that these aren't really signals. Right. That debate is over. That's gone. But the, but the debate that we have in front of us now is far, far worse. How did they know? Why did they know that these would all be signals? Why was that an expectation? And I think that 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 this is a question that should Matt, be asked by everyone right now. Josh, well, you, you know, yeah. Can you hear me? OK. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Or am I coming? Yeah. OK just piggybacking on this idea that they they were expecting these they were expecting this you know we have through foia uh contract a contract they signed with with a weapons manufacturer general dynamics to um to take over or to take charge of the vares reporting for the covid-19 vaccines this contract which was signed in august of 2020 August of 2020, months before the EUA, and was in effect as of August 2020. It wasn't like okay, let's wait until the vaccines are approved, and then we'll and then we'll start paying you. So they hired they and in the contract they said we historically have about a thousand adverse event reports per week. We're expecting a thousand per day, and whereas we normally have about five percent serious adverse events, serious death, hospitalization, permanent disability, life-threatening adverse event, we normally have 5%. We're expecting 40% of the reports to be serious adverse events. And that was in August of 2020. And then at the end of February, they hired, they had to triple the, the, the number. They had to go up to, they had to hire a bunch of more people and pay them you know, another $20 million, triple the budget to process an extra 25,000 adverse event reports a week in order to take care of the backlog of over 100,000 reports they ha had gotten already in just the first two months of the program. So, you know, even their worst nightmare scenarios were not as bad as, as the actual thing was. But you can see that they were fully expecting a massive... Uh, increase in reporting. And as Steve pointed out, you know, it's not like we, they don't give vaccines. They give it's like 100 million vaccines given every year to the to the adult population and another, um, I don't know, uh, I did a, I think like another 160 million childhood vaccines, including the flu vaccine. So, you know, there's a huge number of vaccines that are given out every year in, in, in the country. I just did a little um, napkin math based on um, on what Josh just said about how they were expecting, um, you know, seven times as many reports coming in a thousand per day instead of a thousand per week and the ratio of the severe reports. So um, my napkin math says they were expecting about 90 times as many severe injuries or deaths than usual. They were already expecting that. Why? Why were they already expecting that? But do you know um, what's really disgusting about it? is the gaslighting that we're seeing. So um, if, if you look, for example, on my um, substack. Actually, actually, Scott, so I, I, if, if, um, if I could have you uh, wait for just a moment, I'm, I want to I throw something new into the conversation that may change the way people think about this because this expectation, there, there's one more piece I want to throw in here, uh, which is that last week um, I had a chance meeting with a gentleman 
who told me that he secretly helped fund one of the mRNA vaccines. And uh, his name is Brian Bishop, and he said that he funded it with Bitcoin. Uh, he came to a dinner that I hosted, um, and uh, and and he he very plainly told me that he had you know secretly helped fund uh, vaccine development. But then uh, further, he went um, he he we discussed the question as to whether or not the vaccines are effective, and and he shifted the conversation. He says, "Well, well you know, it all comes down to what do you mean by effective." Did it stop the pandemic or did it transfect cells? <laughs> I'm throwing this out there because this question of what did they know prior to this entire vaccination program? Is it possible that this was an experiment meant to do something completely different? Um, this man is a transhumanist. Um, he got involved in Bitcoin early, specifically through an email group among transhumanists and seems to have been um, steering toward transhumanist technology. He was uh, kicked out of the Human Genome Project for trying to, uh, or for, for pushing his research toward designer babies. So I'm just pushing that out there because I feel like, I feel like I've, I've collected enough information at this point. I've seen enough from, you know, heard enough from the CDC and the FDA, heard enough from the DOD side to say, when they tell us, when they tell us we were expecting this, I think we should believe them. There's something I really want to make sure we we emphasize that Albert had pointed out in the chat. And this did come up two weeks ago when we talked to Liz and Jessica. But Albert, do you want to elaborate on what's on the screen here? Yeah. And thank you, Liam, for putting that putting that up there. And this kind of um, also segues into um, just taking a step back to the notoriety effect that Matt, Matthew was talking about in that um, also to remember that uh, filing a false a false report is a, is a felony, which makes it a federal or a federal crime, which makes it a felony. And, um, you know, I've filed a couple of reports myself. One, I helped I helped a lady, a lady a friend, um, Brainhawk, shout out to you, but her Poor mom, she passed away from, you know, a death from the jab. Um, and then my uncle, who who's still alive, but he got a stroke. But anyways, the point is, is that me uh, helping um, submit the report, they wanted to know everything about me except for my social security number. They asked me, like, are you the patient? No. How are, how are you related to the patient? I'm the nephew <laughs> or, or the other one. I'm a friend. Um wanted my address, wanted my telephone number. And then on each screen, it said uh, filing a false report is a crime, you know, is a federal crime. So, um, and then, you know, it's a little bit clunky and yes, you'll get kicked off after 30 minutes or so. Um, so you factor all that, all that in, you realize that it's going to be difficult for somebody to come in and try to sabotage the VAR system by like pumping in a thousand or a million fake reports. Um, so I, you know, I don't discount that, but I think it's going to be kind of difficult to do that. And the other thing, and now, now onto this part here is that, and this is something that I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Rubin about, because, um, here is the five times that they tell us that only the initial report is made public, even though they continue to capture follow-up report, like follow-up data, like the V-safe data, like 
post backs, you know, at your at your 60, 96 month and one year anniversaries, they'll you'll get a text or in my case, an email saying, you know, check in. How are you? How are you doing? Um, you know, are you still alive? How do you feel? Do you feel like you've recovered? Something like that. So they're talking about that follow up data. But then there's also in the four to six weeks they have to rigorously authenticate a report. They give themselves a, a reasonable and comfortable up to four to six weeks to authenticate a report before they publish it, um, which that's what it says on the guidelines. But in reality, I realize on one side, they flip reports super fast, like uh, based on the, the date that they received it to the date they published it. You know, sometimes it's only three or four days has, has passed, even on death reports, and then they'll turn around and publish it. And then on the other far end of the spectrum, they've held on to death reports and other kinds of reports for over 600 days before they've, they've told the public about, about these deaths. And, um, you know, just my quick uh, napkin math, just on this last drop, on Friday, the January the 20th, they gave us about 156 deaths. And wouldn't you know it that 53 of those deaths out of the 156, these people had actually died in 2021 or old, you know, or older. Well, 2021, the oldest one died in January of 2021. And we were just told about it now. And they had it in their possession for over 670 something days, 674 days, something like that. That and that's the Guinness Book of World Record. That's that's the biggest um, lag. So, you know, Scott, when you're doing your analysis, when everybody's doing their analysis, and I'm and I'm realizing that oh my gosh, they are throttling. These are not. It doesn't seem to be organic, organic uh, publications each week. Because I think the general public thinks that maybe there's, you know, there's only a, like a couple, a few, two or three week delay, and then they publish, you know, they publish reports. It takes them a few weeks to process. And uh, I don't, you know, for the most part, yeah, but there's there's a lot, a lot of thousands of reports that mm. go well beyond the four to six week authentication process. Well, since we're on the topic um, of, of manipulation of these reports and manipulation of the data, I have a question for Wayne. Wayne uh, uh, has, yeah. if I understand correctly, 80 different signals that were missed by, yeah. uh, by the reporting analysis. Um, I have a, I'm curious, is there any general grouping? Because, you know, I mean, like, you know, most of um, what we've seen are, are um, cardiac and blood disorders uh or um well you tell us are there any particular groups that most of these 80 signals that were left out belong to let me just pull it up um i i did put uh i did notice a lot of thrombosis a lot of uh myocardial stuff so it, it's along the same line well let, let's do a, a thought experiment uh, if if you were to if you were an investigator and you were to see that thrombosis was being uh, intentionally hidden, I'm not saying that this was intentionally done, but let's suppose that it were. What would you think somebody was trying to hide? 
Well, here's the thing. I don't I don't necessarily think they were intentionally trying to hide these signals because they're they're already represented. They're, all these thrombosis heart events are already represented in their uh, in their results from uh, July 29th of 2022 because they had 770 of them. But the question is why why did they leave these out? It's almost like were they just using a completely different data set that you know the public has no access to? Perhaps. Uh, when I, you know, I, and I looked at the spreadsheet. I got a hold of the spreadsheet um, uh, from uh, the Epoch Times. The Epoch Times before it was published uh, from Zach over there. And you know, when I looked at it, I didn't. When I looked at the top ten, maybe on the different tabs that I that I poked on, or top twenty, uh, I didn't think immediately uh, blood or clotting or cardiac disorders. Oh, you didn't. I, I not not you know I you know. Well, did you have it sorted in any way? Um, I think I was. It was sorted from uh, highest PRR. Okay. In, in the tabs that I was looking at. Um, now it, it's it's certainly true that that those were in there, but I didn't get this like super feeling of focused around blood cardiac, um, as I do when I look at this list. Okay. Well, so one of the points. One of yeah, because the there's, there's probably about seven or eight there that are coagulopathy and blood clot related. Yes. Yeah, and then you've got all the all the thrombosis down the bottom. So one of the points I make in this article, if uh, whoever's controlling this, Liam, if you could scroll down more to the uh, chart that I post. Um, basically, my point was that you can get lost in the weeds looking at that spreadsheet that they provided because there's so many, there's 770 items on it, right? And so to, to basically see the forest from the trees, it's much more useful to look at a graphic. So something like this you see on screen, which is what I summarized. And basically I took, and the other problem, which I also point out in the article is that they took the lowest level symptoms, right? The, the PT bedra terms, instead mm -hmm. of classifying them or grouping them into a higher uh, category. And so I've kind of done that here. And then I've also taken the adverse events of special interest, which were actually listed in there and defined in their SOP. And so the ones, the, uh, the ones that have stars next to them, the symptoms that have stars next to them, those are the AESIs, the adverse events of special interest as defined in their SOP. Okay, before we get too far away, I got to let Scott jump in with the thought that we, uh, that we lost earlier. Yeah, I apologize for interrupting, Scott. That's okay. Sorry, I will say that that's in the second report, we did exactly the same thing as Wayne. We um, grouped symptoms together and we used a machine language, uh, machine learning text classifier to basically, you know, go through and find all of the, the and the example we give in the paper is for um, high blood pressure. So, you know, go through, find the nine or 10 or 12 different terms that we used and lump them together. Find all the terms that we used for cardiovascular disease and lump those together and so on. Um, what I was getting at before was um, it's interesting to note that they knew that they were going to have these adverse events, yet they've spent a lot of time gaslighting everybody and trying to avoid admitting the events are happening. Um, one of the biggest things that that I constantly um, am sort of butting heads with, uh, both in the UK or when I look at Australia and New Zealand data or even when I look at the US and Canada data, is this 
this whole idea that um, and and Professor Fenton's done a couple of great videos on it. This whole idea that they keep misclassifying things, so they keep misclassifying. You know, the, the, as um, Jess said last week, you know, you, you you don't start the clock from fourteen days after the needles pulled from your arm. You start the clock the minute the the plunger goes down. Um, one of the things that we're seeing here is quite a lot of 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 people playing sort of cover my butt with this idea that, well, if we go look at, you know, one of these these vaccine databases, um, and I think it was, I think it uh, might have been Steve that said a, a little while ago, the fact that, you know, you had pop-up tents, you had circus tents everywhere where they were doing the jabs. We had the same thing here in the UK. So you had very, very unreliable um, knowledge of who had or hadn't been vaccinated, um, and in the and, and I, I did a big diagram at one point in a in a paper that we published showing all of the possible routes and all of the possible ways you can end up with either underreporting or overreporting. But the the key thing is that we have a database here called NIMS, which is our National Immunisation Management System. Um, and you get this idea that you've got you've got various groups like we've got a group in Oxford and a group called the um, ICNARC, ICNARC, who are doing all of these reports and going, oh, 98 percent of, um, of pregnant women who've ended up in the intensive care unit are all unvaccinated. And when you go look at their report and I've got a sub stack that I put a link to in the chat a little while ago, um, when you go look at their report, what they do is they assume that if the notification of the fact that the woman's vaccinated hasn't somehow filtered through the various systems, and I, um, you know, if the woman gets vaccinated, for example, at her booking visit at the hospital, it's got to go through seven different steps to eventually find its way into the correct database. Uh, if she gets vaccinated at a pop-up tent, it might never find its way into the NIMS database. But what they what they did with their report was they said, well, you know, we looked at NIMS and look, we found a, we found that the woman had a NIMS record, but there was nothing in it that said COVID. So therefore, we just assumed she was unvaccinated. So instead of going not known or no record, they went unvaccinated and said, well, you know, there we go. And yet we've had prominent mathematicians here, um, you know, from places like Cambridge University, uh, Sir Isaac Newton's old haunt, who've turned around and said, well, you can't rely on that NIMS data. Everything you get from NIMS is, you know, terribly delayed, terribly unreliable, it's biased, etc. Yet we're being told here lies like one in six pregnant or recently postpartum, uh, sorry, one in six patients in the ICU is a pregnant or postpartum woman. Well, that's a lie. We found it was it was something like four in a thousand, not one in six. One in six, I think, is 167 in a thousand. Um, we were being told that 98% of pregnant and recently postpartum women were unvaccinated. Well, we ended up finding that uh, at the time that they were saying that these women were unvaccinated, 50% of the women who were turning up in hospital um, to deliver a baby had been definitely vaccinated with at least two shots. So how, how are we supposed to believe that, you know, 98% of them are unvaccinated when we go look at the NHS records and the NHS actual EHR record records that over 50% of them were vaccinated and they were vaccinated by their midwife. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's being gaslit into thinking that un, being unvaccinated is the danger. Um, if you look at that link that, I, that, that uh, came up on the screen a moment ago, you'll see that stillbirth rates dropped during COVID. So they dropped for um, the, the period of, of 
2020. Okay. Um, uh, miscarriages also dropped. Okay. So you've, you've got, there's, there's two of the bad signals. Um, emergency cesarean sections stayed largely static. So if you if you go to scroll down to the graphs that are that are in there, you'll see I, I put a whole heap of graphs in that post. Um, so um, as far as this data here, this is the ICNARC or ICNARC as we call them. Um, their data, their own data set shows that during COVID, uh, women in the in the intensive care unit was at around. Uh, if you scroll down, there's a second set of tables I've put just below that. There's a double side by side. Um, it's there we go there uh, average of 1.3 women per day that's during covid when you come forward to after they started um, administering the vaccines to pregnant women it doubles it almost doubles um, keep coming down and there should be a, a a graph for the stillbirths comes up shortly um, so that that little bit there was just about the fact that we went looking at some of I went and interviewed some midwives at sorry there was the, the there was a previous couple of screenshots I interviewed um, several midwives and then got the reports from some of the, the the three largest delivering hospitals in the UK and found that they'd hardly had any incidents of women going into intensive care and in fact for you know a supposedly airborne killer virus. Um, some of these hospitals were reporting, well, this Liverpool Women's Hospital, which is in the top five, it was reporting one nosocomial infection for the whole period. So, you know, it's, it's supposedly getting out there and it's putting all these pregnant women in intensive care, but only one person caught it. Um, so if we keep scrolling down, um, the, the sort of that graph there is an example of the, the sort of criminal way that they try and make it seem like um, COVID is killing people. Um, what they've done here is they've changed, instead of saying how many actual patients went into intensive care, they've said how many number of days a patient received, uh, sorry, how many number of days as a total a patient of that type, so a recently pregnant or currently pregnant woman, was supported in intensive care. So what we're seeing there is that over that particular period, um, there was about 240 days of intensive care used for pregnant women. Now, when we went and had a look at some of the records, what we found was, for example, one patient had been in intensive care for 130 days. The minute you took her out of that there, you ended up back at actually a lower number of days of intensive care for the 75 women who actually did go to intensive care. Most of them ended up being about 0.8 to 3 days. So, you know, if, if you've got a situation like that where one patient's um, stay overbalances everybody else, but what's happened here is this graph has been reported by a whole heap of um, mainstream media here, and it's being used by some of the, the sort of the, the people who want to promote vaccination by them going, well, look at the green graph, the green and the red graph, so that COVID's causing all these problems. Well, <laughs> actually, it doesn't. So if you uh, keep coming down, uh, a little bit more. Yep, keep coming past that. Um, uh, keep going. There's, there should be a graph. Then um, don't keep going past that one. Uh, so here we go. This is um, monthly stillbirths in the UK. So what you're looking at on the left of that yellow bar is pre-COVID. So that's before COVID even existed here. The yellow bar itself is the COVID 
sort of main reporting period here where we had the two biggest spikes, so between March and September. So that's the period where um, the newspaper articles and the, the, the Nature article and the Lancet article that you scroll past, that's the period where they were saying stillbirths were up and they were claiming stillbirths were, you know, hugely increased. Yet, as you can see, the general trend of the oh, graph... Sorry to interrupt, guys, but I think I got to run. Okay, thank you so much, Josh, for being here. Thank you. Yeah, it's been real. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk to you again soon. Yep. Yeah, so as you can see there, the general trend for stillbirths actually dropped during COVID. On the right, the two green bars, are light green is the first dose, dark, dark green is the second dose. You actually see that stillbirths not only go up, they go up at roughly the same angle as the 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 women were receiving doses, and they go up much higher than pre-COVID. And yet we're told that it's COVID that's causing this, it's not the, the, the vaccines. Um, and there should be one more much larger, really nice graph further down. That's our friend there. So what we've what we've got there is light grey. We've got booking visits. So it's fairly normal in any maternity unit, no matter what, Western country you're in, it's fairly normal for you to book more women. So more women will come in initially, oh, I think I'm pregnant, than you'll actually deliver. Um, the difference between the light grey and the dark grey will be a whole lot of things like miscarriages and so on that, that unfortunately happen, but that's the way humans are built. But what we're seeing here is that the bookings are dropping down towards the, the actual deliveries, the darker line. But the important things to note here Unvaccinated women are yellow, that, that yellow bar that comes down. Vaccinated first and second dose, again, are the same two colours of green. What we've got at the bottom, we've got premature births. One of the biggest things that they kept harping on about in the media and, the, and all of the social media sort of Twitter doctors that would keep harping on, you have to get vaccinated because vaccination prevents premature babies. Yet, if you look at the premature baby line, it drops back in March 2020 during the COVID period, and it picks up again once you get to a point where you're about eight or nine months after the vaccinations rolled out in the UK. So prematureness was not affected, was not negatively affected by COVID whatsoever, right? But it returned to normal, so we're not really worried about that. The purple line, though, is actually one that's quite serious. The purple line is emergency caesarean sections. So these are situations where the woman's had something like um, a, a preeclampsia uh, or eclampsia. So they've had blood pressure issues that have meant that their body's rejecting the baby. Uh, or they've had something like placenta previa uh, or, or, or some other, you know, maybe a, a, a high bleed, what they call a, a, either an antepartum hemorrhage where they bleed before they have the baby or a postpartum hemorrhage where they bleed afterwards. Now, it's interesting to note, emergency caesareans in the UK had actually dropped over the last 10 years or so, they dropped quite considerably. But the line as it comes in from 2019 is fairly stable. And it stayed fairly stable during COVID. But when you get to the point where you start getting, it was the, the end of March is when they started, the, the JVCI here said, right, we want to jab all the pregnant women. Notice that March is when the line starts to go up a little bit. Then it goes up a little bit more. Then it goes up a little bit more. Um, by the Once the vaccines were fully rolled out, once we see the point where you, you see where 
um, vaccinated takes over unvaccinated, you're already at a point where you've got 31% more emergency caesarean sections for a blood bleeding or blood pressure type related incident. You're 31% up on what's been your trend for the last couple of years. Okay, so I, I, I can't understand again, we've got to start looking at this and, and wondering, okay, COVID didn't seem to do very much to emergency caesareans during the period where just COVID was the only instigator. The minute you've got COVID and the vaccines, that's when we've started to see a problem in all of these maternity statistics. And we're being gaslit here by them saying, oh, well, you know, a, 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 record, a record in this one database that we know is lacking in records about vaccination, even though that's what it's meant to be, we'll call that unvaccinated because the data didn't get there. I, I'm going to throw this out there. Um, you know, you know I, I worked on the Defense Medical Epidemiological Database Project, and uh, which is still a very frustrating, um, I, I sort of consider it ongoing, but it will probably never be resolved, unfortunately, where um, you, know, you get to August of, of 2021, and suddenly there's a server migration and the data changes a whole lot because when the, da the database was brought back online, a lot of the data from 2016 through 2020 was just missing. And so when the whistleblowers queried the data, they didn't have all of it and they had the wrong comparisons. But when, when uh, the quote unquote glitch was found and the data was added back, it was greater than the historical data had been raised up from where it had been in prior snapshots. Now, of course, all of this is going on during this period, right? And we, we couldn't really, you know, we didn't have enough data to detect like fertility safety signals uh, like this, right? I mean, uh, what, what Scott's showing uh, looks pretty clear to me, um, but we, you know, we didn't have enough data in there. And when I, when, I think, when I think through all the shenanigans that we've talked about today, and all of the signals that we've talked about today, I just think, you know, uh, the DMED would have been, oh, would have been such a great database to add one more source for consistency. And so when we talk about this data gaslighting, I think, I think this should be a phrase that we use more often. So I'm, I'm glad that Scott uh, brought it up in here, but I, I wanna give it a couple of similar examples to Scott's that, that I've seen personally. When, when I look through the CDC's county level data, all like 3,140, U.S. counties or whatever the number is, um, there were times when you would see the vaccination rate get up to 99.9%, stay there for weeks, and then suddenly fall to 95%. And when you read the fine print, you find out that their numbers are only modeled anyway, yeah. right? And so, you know, you have, you don't get their, you don't get any sort of, you know, real raw data. All you have to do is, you know, hope and assume that that they've that their black box is going to be somewhat accurate. Even then, a lot of the claims that they seem to be making didn't match what I saw when I looked through their county data. Um, and then we had, before, we had hospitals here that were reporting one hundred and five percent vaccination rates. <laughs> How does that work? Right. Um, and then uh, and then Scott, um, I, just because I, I did just a little tiny bit of looking at the ONS database, um, you know, just enough to know, you know, some of what, uh, you know, you and Norman and Joel and others have, have, have talked a lot about. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I, that I saw when I started uh, looking into the ONS spreadsheets was that that little, there's a tab that has like just like a few sort of, you know, asterisk type statements. And there was one that said that there were over 2000 deaths of vaccinated people that were not in the data. 
Yeah, they keep it, finding it, reasons to maneuver people or they recategorize them as unvaccinated. You know, <laughs> oh my God, he he didn't get his second dose yet, so he's now unvaccinated. Or well, well, um, you know, regardless of moving people around categories, I mean, it was just it was just a statement. It was like two thousand some odd people. Do you know the the statement that I'm talking about? Yeah, it was yeah. two thousand some odd deaths in, in vaccinated um, people that that aren't being that aren't being included in all their statistics, and and they don't tell you where. And they don't give any reason why. So when you see these efficacy, effectiveness, these vaccine effectiveness measurements that are claimed, uh, you know, in, in the UK and in the US and people go, oh, this is the best government data. These are the responsible governments that know how to do things. Um, you know, just just remember that if you don't read the fine print, uh, mm. you don't necessarily see all of the data gaslighting that goes on. But there there is uh, there's so much more of it than i've ever seen in in any type of circumstance it, i mean it, it's just it's everywhere the data gaslighting is so you know i i want people to hear this part and hear scott and 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 to understand you know it, it's all over the place you know there's there not even enough of it uh, enough of us to to point it all out matthew can i just jump in here absolutely uh, so um scott uh, the the information that Scott was just presenting on the um, fertility related issues, one of the main data sources he used was from this ICNARC or whatever it's called. The day after he published this on his Substack, that page was gone. Whatever data he had pulled off of it was just gone within 24 hours. And I don't know if that's been reinstated or not. Maybe Scott. It, it looks like some of it's been reinstated. Yeah, but you have to check that they didn't start fudging around with it. They did this in mm -hmm. Israel all the time. There was a <clears throat> a preprint that um, Retzif Levy and some other people put up using some data they had on their, their dashboard. And within like a day of them, uh, you know, circulating this paper, the data that it was based on had like completely been changed in order to skew the results in a different direction. And I could go on with other examples, but one thing that was interesting that Albert found, so Albert's been tracking the deletions from VARES, right? He has this great thing on his dashboard, which is amazing. Everybody should go there, check it out, uh, of like how many deletions there are every week. And what you see is that right at that point, at the end of March, beginning of April, when the CDC said they started doing their safety signal analysis in 2022, there's a huge spike in the deletions from VARES for like two months, this huge spike, much higher than in, in, the, in the past. And then, it, and then it kind of tapers down to its regular level, but it's very, very suspicious. <laughs> now, yeah. Albert, Albert, uh, and we were just talking about fine print as well. So let's use these couple of transitions. You wanted to follow up. There were some further points you wanted to make on this, uh, this follow-up report fine print situation. Absolutely. And just to wrap up uh, this only initial reports are made public, uh, the, the number four section there, where it, it looks like it says um, that um, only initial reports are made public, but uh, um, since January 2011, uh, only uh, primary reports are included in the data. So what that meant to me was I, I went and looked at reports pre-2011 with with big narratives in them, long narratives. And it looked like I could tell where the system 
where the VAERS system would append the follow-up data to the initial report. And um, I'm not so I'm not so sure. That's why I kind of wanted to ask, uh, get a chance to ask uh, Dr. Rubin, Stephen, um, if 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 he recollects anything in there, because that goes. It's almost like we're operating under this old paradigm where we don't realize, like, wait a minute, if if we're only seeing the initial report, well, gee, I wonder how many of the 1.5 million people are now since dead, because. Because Brie at React 19, Brie Dressen, has people that are filed their initial report as an office visitor or an emergency visit, but they're now want to say that they're permanently disabled. Or one lady or one man actually has since died, and the wife is screaming that she wants to change her report from emergency to death. And she's getting the runaround on the phone call from the various people saying, oh, yeah, 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 we're updating it but getting the word salad that they're not updating it officially for the, for the public, like the initial report. And I, you know, so anyways, I was just wanted to ask, uh, ask uh, Stephen if that is in fact the case, did they, because I, I also did use his Wayback machine expecting to see, well, if they did append, append it, maybe I would see it in the uh, in the changes section of his Wayback Machine. Before Stephen answers, one of the things that we noticed when we were reading them, because we, you know, literally read them a line, at, you know, a person at a time, one of the things we noticed was some of the earlier reports, you can actually see that somebody had gone back and said, you know, yes, this patient was retested and was still COVID negative, or they got retested and they were COVID positive. So you could see where somebody had cut and pasted extra bits in. We don't see that now. You know, it has always been the case that uh, the VAERS folks in Washington, D.C. have more data than they publish for us to look at. If you use CDC Wonder, you notice occasionally that some of the cases has a VAERS ID, a six or seven digit number, then a dash one or a dash two mm. after the number. And these dash twos are the follow-up cases that people have filed. There are none of these distinctions in the data that's released for me or any of us to use. So uh, there may well be follow-ups, uh, entire follow-up cases, but there are follow-up results because I see all the time a change is made to a case and the change says, says died no, and they changed died yes. So there are some of these updates. I don't know what kind of Herculean efforts you have to go through to get VARES to do this. Uh, you know, one of the comments that was made earlier was about, you know, the millions of extra dollars that had to be spent to staff VARES. Um, did they staff them with experts? Did they staff them with people who know anything about medicine or are these just data wranglers who are, who are trying to slog through stuff? Reports that are two years old before they get filed. Could it be could it be malevolence or could it just be stupidity? You know, I, I often go for the stupidity explanation <laughs> of, you know, uh, the dead letter department that this report came in and it fell between two desks. And then two years later, someone was cleaning and went, look at this and put it on top of the pile and it finally gets filed. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just saying that it isn't always evil that explains things in the world there's a simpler explanation and that is foolishness 
One of the things you know, we should we should remind ourselves that uh, they've told us that they were expecting more, and and and, and maybe we should mention that uh, Pfizer uh, in the Pfizer's documents in in the FOIA dump from uh, Aaron Siri, they had hired six hundred VARES uh, VARES ish reporters for their own internal system. Uh, were in the process of hiring twelve more, and then had a plan to hire six hundred more after that. And uh, from what we've heard, it sounds like there are approximately just fifty people at VARES. So that gives an indication of, of what kind of an explosion of reports were expected behind the scenes. Um, but what I, I think we're going to move toward uh, wrapping things up. And, I, and I'd like to thank everybody so much. This has been, uh, you know, uh, such an important, um, you know, afternoon. And, and, and if somebody has a, a really important thought, I'll give you a chance in just a minute. And, and uh, you yeah, know, especially Stephen, uh, your work is historically important here. Uh, you know, thanks so much for uh, making us one of your uh, rare appearances. One of the um, one of the things that did happen after we released that first report, sorry, I'm really rude and jumping in, was we were I was DM'd um, by somebody on Twitter who was a woman who said that she was working. She was a contractor for a, a like a phone company. She was working in the phone center at Vares and told us about the process that they were going through at the time. Um, unfortunately, Twitter, of course, blocked my account at some point, and and I I do have a backup of the account, so I've got her messages. But um, she actually talked about the fact that what would happen is they would sit at the desk, they were contracted, they're getting an hourly rate, they sit at the desk, and then every Friday, apparently, there was a group at VAERS who would sit around and go through the reports that came in and decide, you know, yep, that one's in, oh, that's a duplicate, so we'll throw that one out. Oh, we don't like that one, we'll throw that one out. That one hasn't got the right sort of information. So they were actually doing they, what they claimed was quality control at the time, which very well could have just been censorship. Okay, yeah. well, we, we, we need to uh, have follow-up uh streams on any number of these topics we've we've uh touched on ever briefly and this was the largest show we've ever had as matthew said um it, you all being here you've contributed something uh, unique you've each uh approached this work um well you started at different times you were brought in for different reasons but the result has been um as mentioned at the beginning a a, a, a sort of a justice league uh the vares audit league of the world um, so we've also had, uh, beyond just your, your individual platforms, um, that you've built, uh, we've had a lot of really important links, uh, shared and resources for people to reference and to look, uh, back on further. So I'm going to go in after the show and make sure that is all, uh, documented and available for everybody. And, uh, in the meantime, I just want to, as Matthew said, open up if there are any final thoughts now or forever hold your peace till the next stream anything anyone wanted to add in um yeah i'll go first real quick and and uh you know hopefully on the next stream hopefully you have us all back on as i wanted to uh especially with with scott and and uh steven and the other techies a little more techie talk about about data extraction from the narrative because a lot of us are doing that and uh you know and and how that applies to the foreign data and you guys discussed that with um with jessica and uh and liz but um but yeah because I, i'm i use that currently with the amount of like unknown ages that the ages are clearly populated in the narrative but the, but the actual age is not populated in the age field um be it 
a lot numbers are in there, uh, you know, symptoms like we're like the foreign stuff. But, um, you know, talk talk turkey about more tech, more techie stuff like that, because we rely on that heavily. And that was a big kick in the gut with that foreign data being scrubbed out like that. And I noticed that subsequently they started scrubbing out countries that that were outside the European Union and the yellow card. And nobody noticed it, that some of the Australia, Philippines, Japan, those those countries do not participate in that European Union blurb that we got that said that was the premise why they why they scrubbed that data. So we could talk about that later. But thank you for uh, having us on here, Matthew and Liam. I mean, and just what a rare treat to have uh, Dr. Stephen Rubin. And um, man, let's do it again. Thank you. God bless you guys. Thank you. Rock on. Okay, so um, I just want to remind everybody, in addition to the the platforms and uh, the tools that these tremendous gentlemen have put together, um, we also invite everybody to, if you haven't yet, um, become a, a member of our uh, Locals community, roundingtheearth.locals.com, where we, in advance, made sure to go out and publish all of the different places you could watch this stream. Um, we've had a live chat going there as well. Um, you can join for free to keep in uh, in the loop with everything that Rounding the Earth is doing, or it's also a way to support the show if you'd like to uh, for as little as $5 a month. And there's also uh, a free... Uh, code you can use for a free month of support there. Um, but it's a great resource. Go join over there if you haven't already. And, um, and, and please do. It really is a great place for a community of people to all put in their observations because putting together the big picture is difficult. Um, we all we all get focused on our little piece. And then when you know five or six people contribute to a topic, it, it instantly turns into you know, uh, a, a more complete picture of what's going on. So we appreciate all the people who contribute there. And there are a bunch of them, um, some very, very intelligent people. And it's it's turning into more of um, a more of a community, uh, like we said at the beginning, a burgeoning research community. When you get people uh, just like this group here um, who are all passionate about uh, a subject and who are all interested in trying to figure something out, you're, you, you figure it out much quicker uh, in, in a community of like-minded people. And that's what this is. So thank you all again for joining us. Um, this has been a wonderful stream. I've learned a lot and um, I cannot wait for the next one. Um, and yeah, we will see you uh, uh, tomorrow for our Locals exclusive live stream. And then again on Friday for Rounding the News. I've been Liam Sturgis. Goodbye. <laughs>